Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, it's so great to have you back here with me for another edition of Felony Friday right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, the Lions of Liberty podcast is the show where we strive each and every week to expose injustice in the broken criminal justice system. This is the last Felony Friday episode of 2016, the last Lions of Liberty podcast episode of 2016. And I hope everyone out there has had a relaxing and enjoyable holiday season. As you can hear by the sound of my voice, I'm getting over a little bit of a cold. So I'll power through this introduction as quick as I can. 2016 has been a great year for the Lions of Liberty, but I'm pretty confident that 2017 is going to be even better. And next week, actually on Monday, which is going to be the first Monday of 2017, myself and Mark Claire and Brian McWilliams will be laying out some of the exciting changes that are going to be coming in 2017 to the podcast, to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Hopefully, these changes are going to set us up to be able to engage better with our audience and ultimately to reach a wider audience and grow this show to reach more ears. That is the goal, to take the message of liberty to a wider audience after all. Now, today's episode of Felony Friday is part two of my interview with Shane Casey. In part one last week, Shane shared the background information on how he came to be charged with absolutely horrendous crimes, crimes of sexual abuse of a child. These crimes are really brought against him without any real physical or circumstantial evidence whatsoever. And in part two of today's episode, he's going to be going into and actually going through each trial, Shane did have three different trials and ultimately let us know how he ended up uh, getting released and how he got out on a plea agreement while being able to continue to maintain his innocence and not having to file in the sex offender registry. This episode is a bit longer, so with that in mind, I do want to get to the interview. So just one more note before I get started. This is episode number 52 of Felony Friday, so that means you can find links and notes for the stuff that we're going to talk about in this episode at lionsofliberty.com slash FF52. This episode is brought to you by igniteliberty.us. So please check out the Make Liberty Great Again gear that they have there. Hats and shirts, all hats are $19.95, and you can get free shipping on your order, your order of any size by entering discount code HOLIDAY. Okay, here is part two of my interview with Shane Casey. So Shane, this is all going on. You're being interviewed. Detectives are, they search your stuff. They find this book. At what point are you arrested? Right. So it was on January 4th, 2008. I was arrested by Detective Lance Byrne when he called me to tell me that I had to come pick up my son, Aaron Shane Casey, the son that I had with Stacey Parniski because she had been taken into custody on a probation violation, which she was currently on because of um, altercation with her mother. So I thought something was wrong, but of course I'm not going to not go pick up my son. And so I have to give him the benefit of the doubt because I would never not go pick up my son. As soon as I got there, he said I was under arrest for aggravated sexual assault on a minor. And I was just beside myself. I'm like, I just, I couldn't believe it was true. It was just so surreal. And the next thing I know, I'm thrown into jail. 
I've never been in jail for more than maybe when I was younger. I had alcohol. I think it was intoxication, so I kept him in there for a few hours, but that was about it. And they threw me in jail, and then they put me into the hole for the first time, which I'm sure you've heard about the hole. And the next thing you know, I'm, I wake up in there, and, and my whole life was just ripped from me. And from there, I ended up trying to find out everything I could about my case, John, and I fought. And to give you some highlights, just because honestly, three trials and seven years, seven months, five days would be kind of hard to cram into, even if it was two sessions and not one. Right, right. But I think that touching on the points, especially about our system is important and what changes, you know, what, what had happened to me a little bit, if it helped to make some changes. But also, um, I would like to touch uh, based on what I told you about the allocution and uh, what personally happened to me through my wrongful conviction. Because today I could sit here and tell you, John, that it was horrible and all that, but in the end, I'm a better man for it because it really takes, you know, it puts you to the test ultimately when you're put in a situation like that, and it can either make you or break you. And uh, I ended up having a strong um, belief and faith in Christianity, and uh, I got into practicing it really strongly, and to this day, I still believe. Just to go on a little bit about what happened with that. So I, I'm thrown in jail, and then I get this attorney. That attorney goes, and I'm saying, what's going on? I, and I didn't know anything. And finally, I, I end up, it was a, an older inmate in there. I said, you know what? If you really are innocent, then you should be in that law library every day studying law. You should be writing everybody, getting anybody you can to help. And I'm really grateful for that inmate to, you know, to, to this day because I did exactly what he said. I started studying law and uh, learning more than I ever cared to know about our system. And then I started going into waiting for my first trial. At what point, you know, was it real? Did it sink into you that it was a real possibility that you were going to be convicted of this? I never believed it. It wasn't until uh, probably, well, my second trial, obviously. But uh, I didn't believe it. There's no way. So as things start to unfold, you know, I get my attorney, uh, Dan McGuire, and uh, I start getting evidence, of course, because I, I, I learned that you ask for full discovery. And uh, so I started asking for everything. And uh, I'm reading through this, this uh, evidence. And uh, one of the pieces that, you know, to this day, like haunt me and how people can be so swayed by emotion versus uh, logic, common sense. Anyway, I get the evidence I find that uh, shocked me was that was a medical report that was given to me from... Santa Clara Valley Medical Center or something for kids. They do the testing there for children that have been allegedly sexually abused. I got the report thinking, you know, I'm going to see all these things that were awful. And it turned out that after this full exam, using all the you know latest technology, that uh, there was absolutely no evidence of any type of trauma whatsoever is what they said. And the uh, fact that uh, she was a perfectly healthy child. So the police had lied to you when they were first beginning to investigate you, telling you that there was physical evidence? Yes. And of course, they can lie because it's part of their ruse, and they have, they have the legal right to lie to get the truth. It's kind of a, you know, I don't know. Mm. Yeah. What do I want to say? Oxymoron? I, I was trying to think of the word. You know, that was the first big shocker to me. And then uh, another one was, uh, I got another report. It was a medical report, and this is what just really floored me, John. Um, so, when Stacy sent her daughter to California to her father's to when she was going to treatment, you know, in the offices, getting her back when she was, you know, done, 
he had brought her to a doctor right away for like a, a physical or a checkup. And uh, the doctor uh, did a full examination. I can't remember his name, but it was, uh, I have the report still. Did examination on her and said that she was uh, in, in 25 percentile weight, this and that. Anyway, the end was that she was a perfectly healthy 10-year-old young girl. And uh, when this all came out, somehow the uh, report that was said to, you know, about that doctor's report was never brought up to the people that were doing the exams uh, for the police uh, about the uh, sexual abuse, but was actually the people that were doing the exam was told by her father, David, that he brought her to the doctor when she got there, that she was about 15 pounds underweight, emaciated, she had sores everywhere, and she was very unhealthy. And uh, that was never the truth. In fact, the report actually showed from the uh, exam that when he brought her for the trauma exam, that she had actually gained weight and uh, <laughs> just the exact opposite of what he said. And that was a big, big piece in my case in the first trial. And in the second, that was a big one by a, a pediatrician by the name of uh, Dr. Joseph Hagen. I know he's done a lot of good for children in our state, but... Um, he clearly, uh, this is our system here, and this is a part that I want to talk about that, you know, is disturbing. So they have their expert, this uh, doctor, the prosecution, and um, he's looking through the report in my first trial about her being underweight. You know, and so basically he was saying that uh, his opinion would be that she has classic failure to thrive, a child underweight, you know, not doing good in school and all this. And he was basing his opinion on that. In my first trial, and the other piece of evidence had not come in to my first trial that I remember, because I remember being in the second. So anyway, at the end of the trial, John, luckily, you know, and I believe there was a greater power working for me, you know, I, I had a hung jury, and because uh, some people just weren't going to believe the story. It was just too far-fetched, all these men, this happening. Um, yeah, just to get to, to the, uh, the daughter's story for a minute, because I don't think you really got into the details of it. She was accusing more than just you that her mom was allowing what hundreds of anonymous men that that were never never charged with anything yes to sexually abuse her correct absolutely and uh, I uh, this this is the thing that to this day and if I could ask T J Donovan and, and a lot of other people he's now uh, what is the attorney general now <laughs> our former uh, state prosecutor T J Donovan okay. in my area. One of the questions I would love for him to answer, and he refuses to, is where are all the other men, uh, TJ? So let's touch on that just for a second, because that's a, you know it's really a powerful part of my case. So, so allegedly, her daughter had claimed when this is all the story was constantly changing too, John. So you know, first it was only me, but then it was not just me; it was these other people, but then it was just me in the end, and so it kept changing, and, and then. And then these other people also in England came out, former boyfriends of uh, Stacey Parnisky. And so anyway, so this story ends up coming out that this happened in England first when she was very young. It was five years old when it first happened. And uh, the story that she said happened was that five men a week from an AA meeting in England would come to the flat there, I think they call it. And uh, they would put on this movie and um, it was supposed to be a Disney movie, but it was really a pornographic movie. And then they would end up doing things to her mother and sticking her with needles. Now, she's clearly said with needles like you get at the doctor, she would see it going in. And then they would come, some of them, and do the same to her, stick her with these needles. And she'd feel the, the uh, effect of it. And uh, they would do the same to her. 
and that every time, you know, that they did it, that they did actually full penetration, and it was horrible, you know, some of the things that she was saying. So this was happening every week, like once a week, on a Friday in England for years. And this is way before, you know, I was ever in the picture. So then they moved to Vermont from England, her mom and her. And that was in 2000, um, was it four or five? Because they were before I had met them. And uh, everything was fine. But somehow, John, uh, they were living with her, her grandmother, uh, Stacy's mother, for a little while. And they had their own place. And somehow, the same exact story, once they had gotten into that apartment that was happening in England, started happening here. Five men a week from an AA meeting down the street from the apartment would come to the apartment and do exactly the same thing to her, watch the exact same movie that was in England, and just do the exact same thing. And this went on for years, again. And then I was the last one, of course, in this um, sex ring of this child. And the, the sad part about that one is my name was never mentioned until actually her father at the very end said, oh, and was Shane doing this too? And she said, oh, yeah, Shane was doing this too. So this is really a, an interesting piece about the A being down the street. So here you have the exact same stories. And, uh, you know, Detective Lance Burnham, who was the lead detective on this case, uh, you know, knew about this A being that was down the street and also the apartment building, which is right, you know, close to it. For some reason, never went and investigated and talked to anybody at that meeting because it's an anonymous meeting. So I guess if you're, I guess if you're an alleged pedophile, you can just go to an AA meeting and everything's going to be okay and you'll be safe. I guess I don't know, John, about that one, but and also he, he never let talked to anybody at the apartment building where Stacy lived to see if they saw like five men every Friday night coming up there. I, I imagine somebody would have seen something. He said the building was locked, so he couldn't get in. And he may have talked to one neighbor. Now, this is a lead detective on a case, uh, on a huge case, allegedly, of this child being raped for years. So I, I was baffled by that myself, and many others are. But the crazy thing is that um, I actually ended up, uh, when I was in prison, uh, meeting some people from the AA meeting right down the street. And uh, one of them, his name's Kevin Kerr, and he said I could speak openly was an avid member of that meeting that allegedly these men were coming from. And he said there was no way in hell that any men from that meeting we do such a thing from a child and uh, he knew them personally 10-year member and he would gladly testify in court and uh, he never was used of course and he actually saw my wife my former wife there stacy at the meeting a couple of times in the back just sitting quiet so anyway here's the story of this all happening all these times and at the end of it all there was no shreds of evidence of any type of trauma, John. They did forensic testing on her for the drugs. They did hair samples. Nothing was ever found. No needle marks. I'm sure right when she went out to her dad's, if she was checked by the doctor, he would have noticed something. There was never anything. And the irony is, like, with the, the hair samples they did for the drug testing, she, um, never, she never got her hair cut. And her dad said, even admitted that, yeah, he let her grow it out long. So... You know, with hair, if you don't cut it, it stays in there forever. So there would have been something with all these drugs that were being given every week, and there was nothing. They never found anything at all to corroborate the story whatsoever. So I'm thinking to myself, I'm, I'm getting all this evidence and learning this. I'm saying, there's no way a jury is going to find me guilty like in the first trial where I had the hung jury. I, nobody, I wouldn't believe it, and we could believe it. But um, I obviously learned uh, I was sadly mistaken later on. But... Uh, there was one comforting piece that I just share about the first trial I'll, I'll never forget. And uh, 
that was a man in my jury pretty much sitting like right eye contact for me across and uh, he looked at me and he said i don't believe it and he mouthed it really slow and and i had a real comforting thought that i was going to be okay and obviously i had a hung jury so <laughs> here i am after that i'm getting all this evidence in i'm going what's going on nothing's happened to this child how could they make up these stories and i'm sure you know but unless you go through a trial or you study them you don't realize that they're a whole animal of their own. It's, um, it's a stage, it's actors, and uh, at the end of the day, it's not really so much the, the truth that matters, but um, who wins, and, um, and sometimes it's at any cost. So here I am, I get this hung, Jerry, after being in prison now, let's see, it was 2008, my first uh, trial was 2009, June, around there, April, June. So... I thought I was going to be getting out or whatever, and, and oh, no, we're going to try you again. And I, I just was like, then I was just, I just, I didn't even know what to say, John. I was just, bath, you know, beside myself. The next thing you know, I'm sitting in there, and the trial is going to happen, and um, we go through all these process, pick our jury, and um, the day before the trial was supposed to start, my wife's attorney's mother had passed away, so it was canceled, and uh, I spent more time in jail. The next jury that was picked was a jury that had sit on a panel for three other trials, roughly, because that's how it is in, in the state of Vermont. You can do many trials in, in your um, period. And uh, they had had guilty verdicts on all of them. And um, one of them was a, a sex offender, a second-time um, sex offender who had a prior charge in Florida and had been caught with physical evidence of um, drugging his daughter's friend and then fondling her and there was physical evidence there was drugs in her system and, and the girl caught her so anyway in my second trial this is why i want to mention like the corruption a little bit here during my jury voir dire um the questionnaires somehow inadvertently as uh, the judge had put it then and his name was robert colibus this other person his question got mixed in with mine john and uh these people were looking at me right off as this person that you know had already done this horrible thing and a monster and they were like all thinking i was guilty and uh the judge just gave them a curative instruction saying well you're not to confuse uh mr casey with mr colibus and uh you just like you know to disregard that you know and um so that was just like one of the many things like uh in that second trial that was not right another one was there was evidence that there was needles found when there wasn't I almost had to kick my attorney to, to question the uh, lead detective, Lance Byrne, because he said there was needles and spoons. There, there was never anything found. He tried to say that I admitted I was guilty. This is uh, another, I just want to bring up this for the manipulation that can be used in um, our wonderful art of argument, right? When I was reading my Miranda rights, I said, yup, 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 something like that. I was just so, like, you know, I didn't even care what, was, what he was saying to me. And, uh, on the stand, he tried to use that as me giving an admission of guilt over and over again, and clearly knowing that it was me just answering the question to the Miranda rights. And uh, he also uh, had said that uh, there were some other things found that later on he had to take back that were, were not found and, and had to apologize or something like that. So this just went on and on. And, uh, you know, right to the, um, in my second trial, the um, Dr. Hagen that they had in my first trial he was actually handed the uh, initial medical report from the doctor when she was brought out there about being underweight. And now I just want to bring this up 
because it's important. He was basing his whole, you know, whole theory on classic failure to thrive because of the underweight, malnutrition, all that. And he was showing this report about her being healthy. And he said, oh, was, was weight ever an issue in this case? And uh, he didn't recall that. And uh, that, you know, but he's still stuck by what he had said. So, I mean, just this just went on and on through uh, there's such bizarre uh, incidents in, in all three trials. Of course, the third one was a whole nother. I don't know if you know anything about any of my trials at all or if uh, Mark had talked to you about any of them at all. Just what I read in the article. Okay, so, yeah, okay you, sure. You so, can fill in the third trial sure, for sure. So, so basically, I didn't have a, a prayer's chance in hell in my second trial. It was uh, clearly a hangman's jury. Everybody felt it that came to say, like sit in, in my trial in a day or two because they already had guilty verdicts on these other uh, well-convicted sex offender. And, uh, of course, they had already mixed the, uh, you know, my jury instructions, which was huge. They already planted this in their mind that, that I was guilty. And, uh, you know, many of us know that have been in the system that you're not innocent until proven guilty. You're guilty until you, you hope you're proven innocent. Mm-hmm. And that's if uh, your attorney is willing to do a good enough job for you, especially if you're poor and can't afford to spend uh, hundreds of thousands. In my case, I can't even imagine, probably millions of three trials. You know, so you're, you're going to be stuck with uh, what you get, and um, hopefully you'll have the enough fortitude to learn law yourself and uh, correct your lawyer when... Um, He's not doing his job, which happens. So, so anyway, so I go through this trial, uh, John, and I'm found guilty at the end of it. And I just said I just couldn't believe it. So I was just going through the motions of waiting for, you know, the, the sentencing to come and the appeal. And, uh, and the next thing you know, um, the judge had thrown out the verdict because of uh, tainted evidence. What was the tainted evidence? The doctor that they had in the first trial vouched for the credibility of the alleged victim in the second trial, even after like being shown the reports, like I said, and shown that he, you know, he was mistaken, but he actually vouched and said that it was a classic fail to thrive and that this, this child was abused and he overstepped his boundaries and his, um, you can't do that. You can give your expert opinion, but you cannot say that, you know, so that, that was no good. And it was thrown out based on that and prosecutorial misconduct in that too, because they let the, uh, they let him go through the entire case again and basically just to say that all the points that they were touching on was correct and that she was abused and this is why. So it was no good. He threw it out and uh, I was granted a third trial, which I just was, uh, I couldn't believe it. Here I am now. I went in in 2008. I had been a caregiver my whole life, John. I struggled a little bit with addiction and it was later found out that when I was diagnosed with MS that uh you know I had struggled with cocaine addiction as I was introduced when I was in my later teens and uh, I had real bad fatigue and and uh, it helped and later I find out that that fatigue all those years was multiple sclerosis so so anyway you know I, I'm always open about the truth because there's nothing to hide being in human services and care, I have my flaws, I have my struggles, but I loved what I do and, and I love helping others. And um, in all my years, in all my places I've worked, I've always gotten great write-ups um, of being you know, one of the best caregivers there is, right up to uh, the place before I lost, went to jail about how wonderful I did for the children, and that was through the Francis Foundation. 
so there was never there's no inkling of any of this ever being you know true in my character or whatever so all these years and i'm sitting here like here i'm my third trial been in since 2008 and i lost faith in in the system itself the justice system because i i saw them like they just they can take something and manipulate it to look like something else that doesn't even exist and it's it's mind it's just it's baffling until you're there and you're in the middle of it and you're thinking there's no way this is ever going to happen to me and uh to be honest with you, my story is like this could happen to you don't think that it couldn't yeah. you know and i've told people that many times and um i think a lot of people like yourself probably before this experience have a view of the criminal justice system that it's you know solely there to protect us it's to you know, lock bad people away. And unfortunately, you obviously here found out the hard way that far too often it, it's not there to protect. It's there for, uh, you know, to serve an agenda of a prosecutor, of a prosecutor to um, just get a conviction. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, that's what they're looking for, a conviction. Yes. And it's it's unfortunate. It's very unfortunate, you know, and uh, many people don't know or understand that, our system is built on a system of plea deals and that if everybody stood up, you know, truly innocent, even those that were guilty. I mean, if we all said we're going to trial, our system would crash. So uh, oh, yeah. they're dependent on that. So you were talking about, not to interrupt you there, but what was the conclusion of the third the third trial? Yeah. So, you know, I have documented and I wish, you know, I had some uh, notes that I was going to uh, bring up, but, you know, I just wanted to speak from the heart really tonight. But there was always something going on in the trials that was not right. And it was just said, well, curative instruction will be given and uh, or, or just to disregard that, you know, like the mentioning of, you know, as human beings, you cannot tell. I don't care if you're sitting in a jury or not. And, you know, you're following the judge's instructions, but you you cannot plant something in the head like needles were found when they weren't or uh, evidence that was there doesn't exist. Or, you know, and think that that's not going to stay in the minds of people and, and sway them by their decision because we base things on emotion, whether we like it or not, when it comes to children, especially. Especially, yeah. especially with evidence like that, that yes. is like needles, something that's that, that's a visual. Uh, you know, you say that immediately, mm-hmm. you know, everyone's seen a, a needle on TV or, or something like that, and it's associated with drugs. So something like that, it's a very, uh, you know, it causes a reaction. And you even if, like you're saying, you know, later they walk it back and say, oh, forget about that. that Absolutely. It's not real. That didn't happen. Absolutely. You know, like there was a piece of evidence and also in the uh, trials, I should mention a, a white couch. Um, this is a big piece of evidence here. This white couch, all these incidents um, had happened um, in the apartment where uh, or Stacey had lived with her daughter before uh, moving in with me. And then we had the white couch there. Well, this couch was allegedly all these acts were taking place. But yet when they went to do DNA, like that, that's why I'm, I'm so stuck with my case, right? No DNA evidence. They didn't find any DNA evidence of mine. And uh, other than my uh, epithelial skin cells, which we leave everywhere we go. But, you know, this is the thing, like the attorney, even when you feel like your attorney's on your side or you're told that you're, you're going to be defended, that's not so true, <laughs> unfortunately. You know, my attorney was not going to even mention things like that, and I had to like really kick him under the table to say, because they had mentioned DNA was found. I said to say specifically what it was, and, and uh, to come find out that there was like 
uh, seminal fluids found on this couch, but they weren't part of the case and all this other stuff that was just thrown out. And there was never anything found on the, on the couch, no blood, no nothing. So, you know, I mean, they can just take anything and try to build this this case on it by getting their strategy set and, and sticking to it. And uh, and, and so I, I'm wrapped up in this. I'm fine. Here comes, you know, my third trial. And I'm like, okay, so what's what's going to be... Yeah, um, you know, some the foul up in this one because every trial had something. I had storms through my trial, canceling it, and volcanic ash uh, stopping experts coming over from England, and I, it just went on and on. And uh, so here's the third trial, and we're going through, and um, we get to uh, the place where Stacy's daughter takes the stand for the third time now, and uh, and mind you, uh, John, her story changed every time. She ends up. Uh, saying some the same thing, and, and um, my uh, former ex-wife, uh, she she said, "I can't do this." So I guess the kid says we did it. I guess we did it because everyone's going to believe the kid. And, and um, this was during lunchtime after her testifying. And the next thing I know, my lawyer comes down. It's lunchtime, and he says, "Your uh, your wife just took a deal, and uh, she's being uh, they're going to ship her back to England, deport her back to England to her home country, free." going to be off paper, no troubles and free. So I, uh, I was just sitting there dumbfounded, uh, John three trials and standing, you know, firm in the truth and never wavering on it. And, uh, I was thrown offers. I think my first one was 10 to 50 by my attorney in my first trial. I kind of laughed and I said, why don't you just tell him 20 to hundred? I said, I'll never take any deal. I'll die in prison before I'll ever take a deal, you know, or ever say that I did something horrible like that to a child. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it comes to this point, and she ends up getting deported um, back to England, and I stuck it out to the end. And um, and during that time, I was offered another like five to fifteen. I could get out of jail and all that, and be on the sex offender registry for this period of time. And and I said I will never take anything of a sex offender, anything because I'm innocent and I will stay in jail and die until I am exonerated or the truth, you know. So I always stuck by that because I knew that was one of the very important and truths to, to stick by the truth and, and never waver. And uh, that's what really saved my life through all the years and trials. And as I had faith, I always had faith, uh, John, too. That was a big part. Unfortunately, we're running low on time here. So I just want to get to the to the highlights here. Maybe we can have you back on to uh, to add to it. So there's one question I want to ask about the trial, about about Stacy taking the deal. So Stacy all of a sudden is is not there. She's taking a plea deal. What did they say? What did the judge say during the trial when that happened? When all of a sudden one of the co-defendants is gone. Right, absolutely. And that was another big part of it. They're not to uh, worry about why Mrs. Parnisky is no longer here, that they're just to uh, go by me being left there, that she's no longer you know part of the case, and, and that don't be concerned about it, basically. And, you know, basically told them that you know, if they were to, to have uh, wonder or to just disregard that, basically, <laughs> is what the judge was telling him. So, yes, yeah, so the trial goes on. And, uh, you know, and mind you that my attorney is not really prepared to go on further because he was relying a lot on my wife's attorney who was doing a lot of the um, research and, you know, bringing out the exhibits. And so he's left with me and, and he cuts, starts cutting um, some of my um, – Witnesses, expert witnesses. One was a uh, gynecologist that was expert, who was great, and he didn't use him. And so, anyway, so I, I go through the rest of my trial, right to the end, and, I, and it's, uh, I'm going through deliberations in my third trial. You know, and uh, evidence is closed, 
And one of the, uh, um, okay, this is the, where I actually, uh, my own attorney, and to this day, I believe it and to be true, uh, actually got me to be found guilty, and, and, and I'll tell you why. So evidence is closed, and the jury sends out, you know, they can send out notes to ask for things, and one of the notes uh, was about reviewing the transcripts, uh, the trial transcripts, and there are in evidence, I guess. And then one of them asks in uh, an open court, which you're not supposed to do, to the judge in front of everybody, could we review the forensic interview of uh, you know the alleged victim, part one? And the judge said, no, I don't think so. Uh, evidence is closed. You have to go by what you have. And okay, and this is also uh, important. My jury, the first one was hung for like 18 hours, and they finally came back, you know, and said they threw it out. It was hung. My third trial, unbeknownst to me, and I found out later that my jury was hung six to six, and the state had gone to my attorney and told them that if this man gets another uh, hung jury that we're dropping the charges, he's going to walk free. So I didn't know this at the time. And so anyway, they end up having a little argument, and it turns out that uh, um, they're going to go ahead and get this um, first part of this interview in of a alleged victim in for the jury to watch, which is about three and a half hours long. And uh, I was so tired back then on just fatigued that um, I didn't hear some of what was going on. I asked my attorney, well, didn't they already have the transcripts and evidence? And yes, they're in evidence. And I'm sorry, I was mistaken when I said earlier that they, were, they weren't in evidence. He lied to me and then he told me to just trust him and allow this CD to come in and let them watch it. Well, the problem is when evidence is closed, you can't cross-examine in deliberation. So whatever's in, you can't say anything. And uh, there's two parts to this forensic interview, and they're drastically different. And without showing them both and being able to, to point out that uh, this is what was played. And I'll just remember, I remember it burning in my mind to this day. All of a sudden, I hear this uh, young child crying and, and saying all these horrible things. And then my name is being mentioned in this and this first one, which she later had changed her story because it didn't work because I wasn't even in the picture then. So they, it was too far fetched. So the story changed. And the second interview, that comes out. So anyway, for three and a half hours, the jury washes this young girl crying and they, they go back out to deliberate and come back. I can't remember if it was like 45 an hour with a guilty verdict. And uh, from there, I, I waited for a sentencing. And uh, next thing you know, I am. Um, I went in and was sentenced to uh, 20 to life, two counts, running concurrent. And uh, wow. this is, uh, yeah. So just quickly on that piece of evidence, this is so important, John, and, and especially us. My attorney, you know, knew that that piece of evidence, it was clearly, when I had my, P, I had, everything went down, I, I lost my direct appeal, and we went to my PCR, and, and here I am free today. It came out that that piece of evidence that my attorney should never let it in and it was the worst error ever seen and then that's why i'm here because the state got scared and uh knew they if i went through all my my piece here all the way that um i'd most likely win and uh i had my own defense attorneys tell me we'd never say this against one of our own but i think we have a, you have a pretty powerful uh, malpractice suit against him for professional negligence and uh yeah. and honestly if i had stuck it out i probably would you know someday maybe be a a millionaire or, you know, or, or well off anyway. So through that time, I couldn't believe it. And I got actual evidence of uh, 
a mock jury trial where this mock juries, they're showing this evidence of these pictures that are black and white in color. And I'll tell you why it's so significant. And they're showing these pictures of something that's not even real, but they were convinced by these that, that the person was guilty and it, because it was implanted in their mind. And it talks about videos like that. So the last thing that jury saw, and there were six to hung women as well, which is, you know, harder to convince that it's not true. They were hung and they saw this child crying for three and a half hours. So what are they going to do for the benefit of the fact that, and, and many people know this, for the one guilty, 10 innocent can also be put away just because they would not want to take the chance that they let some, um, you know, pedophile free. And, uh, mm-hmm. and to this day, no one will convince me that my attorney did not throw me under the bus that day and help me to, to be found guilty. So, you know, but there was a part that I'd love to share it with you. I know that we're running out of time, but this is the most important. Yeah. You wanted to, uh, to share what you read, your, your allocution? Sure. Correct? Absolutely. Cause this is, uh, this is what I did with that time instead of allowing it to, uh, destroy me and uh, just being considered a convicted sex offender against a child is like the most horrible crime on the planet. And anybody that knows our, uh, our system, I mean, you're on the outside, on the inside, you're like the cockroach of uh, the prisoner. And, uh, but through it all, I persevered through, and this is what I read to the judge. Now this was this judge Cooper Smith who sentenced me to 20 to life, even after saying that the case was, you know, very strange. It should have been separate trials. The evidence did not add up to the story. It was weak. But in the end, the uh, jury believed the story. So, you know, I, I'm going to believe it too. And you're going to sentence 20 to life. So he sends me to 20 to life. I go into in front of the same judge who didn't want to know nothing about the legal reasoning behind the state. And uh, my attorney's making it. He, he just wanted me in his courtroom. He's going to set, he's going to uh, accept my um, Alfred plea, which I'll tell you really quickly about. And this is uh, just, I'll back up really quickly. Let's take me a second. So November, this is important now, of 2015, right? My, 2015 now. My attorneys, uh, my CR show up to the jail where I'm at, and uh, they told me I got some good news. They told me about the success in the ex-witness they had for my PCR, and that the state offered to drop one of my 20 life convictions and uh, max me out on the other 20 to life and put me out on the registry for life. I could be free in suppose, six years, then seven years and a day. And, uh, you know, I said, you know, I thank you for coming and I'll, I'll think about it. But I can tell you right now, most likely the answer is no. And I talked to everybody a lot. And this is important uh, for those out there to uh, John, if you ever hear this or family members or whatever. But. I talked to everybody I loved because, you know, I didn't want it to be just my decision, you know, I didn't want to be selfish. And uh, they all wanted me to just come out, you know, they were like, just come out. We know you're not a convicted set. Just come home and be with us. And, you know, I, and I really, uh, I have faith and I prayed a lot, John. And at the end of it, I could not accept anything. And uh, I told my attorney, no, I can't accept that. I'd rather die in prison and uh, than ever. And I meant it. And so, you know, he came back with a deal, an Alfred plea. And I know you've probably heard of that, an Alfred plea by now, I'm sure, John. So I could take an Alfred plea to an aggravated, first degree aggravated domestic assault, have both uh, charges dropped, there could rock for convictions and my sentence is vacated, and that I could still have the uh, ability to fight for um, 
other people with Innocence Projects. I, I try to help with other Innocence Projects. And, uh, and I could fight for my pardon later on. And I could keep my innocence even in the courtroom that day. And this is what I read that day to the judge. And, uh, and I'll read it to you now. And that I could still fight. And, but, you know, and then I could read the court that day off paper done. I didn't want to do that even, John. It took me a couple of weeks and I broke down crying. And sometimes even to this day, I felt like I've sold out even though I'm free and I can fight because I didn't do that. And, and I'm a convicted felon now, wrongfully. But so I read this to the judge, you know, many forms. Uh, this is uh, starts out with, with uh, Winston Churchill as, as a quote. And you probably have heard it before. Many forms of government have been tried and tested and will be tried in a world of, of woe. Know that quote Sir Winston Churchill he talks about democracy being the worst form of government, but better than all the rest. Yes, so, yes. Yeah. The significance was the judge actually said that in one of my uh, trials, and I repeated that back to him that day when he when he set me free. And this is what I learned in there, and this is most important of all. When I went into there, I wanted to go on and on about statistics, and I studied law. So I started out with, you know, as I appear to this court today, I appear not as just one man, but as one of the many men, women, who have been wrongfully convicted of a crime we never committed. Justice is what ought to be. Truth is what is. And then I went on to talk about the statistics of the uh, national, you've heard of the uh, Innocence Database, it's like one of the biggest ones there is. And justice denied. I don't know if you've heard of them or not. Talking about the the Innocence Project. Well, no, there's an actual database, uh, Innocence Data database, and uh, okay. it's from um, it's generated usually from the Justice Denied website. It's the the world's largest database of people. Um, exactly. Yeah, I'll uh, yeah. I'll link to that in the show notes. Justice Denied for sure. Yeah. So I went in there. I was doing all these, and I started out my uh, allocution with that, and I went through talking about statistics on the cases of being wrongfully convicted and, and you know, us being the worst U.S. of, of all other, like, countries and uh, and the fact of, that we take longer to get people that have been wrongfully convicted out. And I went on about it. And uh, back then, for my type of cases, which, you know, can be the worst, 475 people had been exonerated in the U.S. And this was back in, I think it was since 1998, of a sexual assault-related crime. And they were incarcerated for an average of 11 years. So I beat the odds, John, that I'm out and I'm not a consistent mm-hmm. sex offender on top of that. And, you know, I imagine back then that cases are going to grow. And, and I went through and cases have just grown in numbers. And, and I just pointed out all of this and I was going through this. But in, in the end, you know, I stopped because it wasn't really about that. That was the importance of me being there that day. It was really about sharing about the people that supported me through all those years that I never could have made it through and the ones that had taught me lessons on how to be a man and like you know to uh endure suffering and and which I learned about being thrown in the hole and uh, the persecution the, the horror stories I could tell you on and on which you know are just numerous but in the end what I learned was that um it's important to stick to the truth have faith be strong and believe whatever you believe and be willing to fight for it and die for it and uh and I did that, and that's what I learned. I learned that that suffering can be a tool used to uh, not make you bitter or resentful, but to actually help you grow and become enlightened. And uh, when you endure suffering um, and come to the other side, you can take that as a great tool. And I, so I went on in jail, and I just wanted to help others. And so I, I read this whole allocution. There's just one really a part of it that I'll, I'll read to you right now. 
and then I'll tell you what I said at the very end of my allocution, which many were shocked and uh, couldn't believe that I said it, but I said I had to say it, and I will say it, and it's the truth. So, you know, I lost a lot when I was in prison, family members dying, you know, everything, my children, I mean, it's just everything, my identity, and in the end, you know, I learned this, it was really important, that, you know, we can take... Like in jail, they can take everything away from you. They can strip you away. They can beat you down, and they do. You know, they can just like basically just tear you apart. But one thing I learned is they could never do unless you allowed them, and you had to be freely willing. They could never take you know soul. And uh, so I held on to that, and um, I learned some great lessons of uh, discipline. And what it would truly like to be a man of integrity. You know, prison taught me that. And uh, so I just basically gave my, this whole allocution was basically talking about those valuable lessons I learned, you know, and that how it transformed me and how I wanted to go on to help others. And, and at the very end, and like I said, also, you know, I said to the judge and I said to um, Susan Harden, who was the uh, assistant prosecuting attorney that uh, made me out to be this monster. That, that was the other thing that was really devastating that I wanted to say that there's a man named Michael Jakes, and I don't know if you're familiar with this case or not. I think it went pretty national about he drugged and raped and murdered his niece. It was a real tragedy here. He ended up getting a, on the death sentence uh, federally and, and he ended up setting a deal for life. But anyway, he, he was a monster here for us. You know? he, he had killed his own niece and uh, physical evidence. I was compared to that man. And when I heard that that day, it just crushed me. But I, you know, I knew it wasn't true, but to be compared to, like, there, she was comparing me to monsters like that. And here I was, someone that there was no evidence, and you're making me out to be this. And uh, so this is what I read in the end. And I said, no matter, you know, we can endure suffering. Some of us can endure unfathomable amounts. And I definitely can relate to the unfathomable amount of suffering. We can either choose to look at each experience as necessary in contributing to our spiritual maturity. As a result, we learn that suffering to be one of the great mysteries of the human condition, but that doesn't mean in any way we need to let it own us. And then I said this to the judge and to the attorney. And I said, in conclusion, I add our respect for myself and the truth. The whole reason I've stated the previous information is for the simple fact that if it were not for the decline in my health, due to the progression of multiple sclerosis. Please, from family and friends, to get out of jail, spend some quality time with them before it may be too late. I would stay in the wrongful confinement and fight the good fight for the exoneration I justly deserve. I would fight until my dying breath, if need be, just as I swore I would at the very beginning of this travesty of justice. And I was I shocked a few of the people there because they were thinking, well, wow. and, uh, but <clears throat> it didn't matter if that deal didn't even go through. John, because I, that had to be said. And uh, I just, uh, I studied a lot and, and so much corruption in the prosecution. I mean, they, they didn't even try to stop things that were said even because they were hoping they would go through like the evidence of like the, the needles being mentioned. All that. They, they weren't going to say anything. Though. And also uh, other things that just, went, it just goes on and on. I mean, I could just tell you so many different instances of, of things that shouldn't have happened and yeah. were just kind of swept uh, like no big deal, you know, right to the end. But and Shane, I'd, I'd like to have you back on yeah, a little bit later sure. down the road. But unfortunately for this, uh, this will be a two-part episode. But fortunately okay. for now, we're we're out of time. And I do want to okay. thank you for coming on the show. Sure. You know, I think anybody who is familiar with your story and now has, has heard this, I think, has 
really has to, you know, there's, I don't think your innocence is in doubt. So I want to thank you for sharing that and thank you for putting up the fight. Absolutely, John. And, and you know, like I said, I can send you another paper. I got stacks of letters from people, inmates that were persecuting sex offenders, writing letters to governors and, and the uh, state's attorneys saying, let this man free. He's not what you're thinking. I mean, it's just all kinds of letters and, and I have petitions I wrote and signed. I mean, just, I never stopped fighting and people out there that believed in me never stopped fighting too. So I'm grateful today and I'd be more than happy to share, yeah. you know, details of things that it would help uh, legal. I do know a little bit about law and I could share some of the uh, points if it would help to, um, of, you know, what to look for if you can. And, uh, and also how corrupt it really can get. Sure. Yeah, it, definitely. That's something uh, that I think this Felony Friday audience would find useful advice that you can give on heaven forbid. And it, it does happen to you know people every day. If if it's somebody who's listening or somebody that they know, a relative, a friend that is facing or could face in the future something similar to what you're going through, to what you went through, a false conviction, a, a false accusation, it's far more common than most people in this country really can imagine. So I want to thank you, Shane, uh, one last thank time you. for uh, for coming on. And I'll be talking to you again. Is there any way, are, are you active on social media? If anyone listening wants to get a hold of you, is there a way to? Absolutely. I have a Facebook page. Um, if you look on it, I post stuff like uh, signing petitions for, you know, the move.org or other, or like signing petitions to save people. I mean, I, I'm always, I'm trying to be active uh, working to help what I can do to help people that have been wrongfully convicted and uh can they so can they find you on facebook just by searching shane casey is that yes. is that the best way absolutely and i might put my page is public i don't you know it's open to everybody so okay absolutely john and uh you know i if anything i can ever do to help in any way i'm more than happy to do it because it's, it's i this is the most important thing i know and i've learned this there's power in numbers and if we don't stick together and make our voice heard then nothing will ever change and even if we've been through hell as people have been wrongfully convicted of the worst crime on the planet earth we need to still be united and fight together because change will never happen especially in a system that moves so slow to make any little change happen solid advice thank you shane and have a great night you as well thank you john thank you for listening to today's show i know it was a little bit longer but i wanted to give shane the opportunity to speak for himself now i intentionally let shane talk a lot. I didn't interrupt and ask a lot of questions because this was Shane's first time talking about this case, his first time speaking publicly about this case. And as you can tell from listening to the past two episodes, it was a very strange case. There were lots of unique twists and turns. And there are some areas that I do want to ask Shane more about. I do want to ask more about a couple different areas of each trial. There were three separate trials here, and we really could dig into each one. Hopefully, in the future, I can have Shane Casey back on and we can cover those areas. Now, there is another case that I've covered extensively on this program that I think does have several elements in common with Shane's case and dedicated listeners to this show, to Felony Friday, will know that I've closely followed the Jerry Sandusky scandal. I've dedicated three episodes to the Jerry Sandusky scandal by having John Ziegler come on the show to break down that case. Anyone who has spent any time looking into the facts of that Jerry Sandusky case knows that there's been a gigantic miscarriage of justice. You can find those episodes. I encourage 
any new listeners to this program to go back and listen. They were episode numbers 8, 14, and 31 of Felony Friday. And I will. Uh, you can find those at uh, felonyfriday.com where you can find the full archive for Felony Friday. And I will also link to each episode on the show notes page for this episode. That's alliansofliberty.com slash FF52. Now, I do want to talk about a couple of those areas, uh, some common areas, areas of overlap, where I think there were some common themes in that Sandusky scandal, that Sandusky case, and the Shane Casey case. So both Shane and Jerry Sandusky, in the run-up to their cases, you remember that Shane talking during these interviews that he was very naive at the beginning. He readily admitted to that. He thought when he was approached by detectives that he was helping out immediately, as he said during the interview, that his thoughts went back to the young girl and her being harmed. The detectives lied about there being physical evidence of this girl being raped when in fact there was none. So Shane, at the very start, he did not get a lawyer. He was very naive thinking that he was helping and thinking even once uh, he found out that he was a subject of interest and they were pursuing him to charge him. He still didn't get a lawyer. He still thought that justice would prevail. And even when I asked him when he first realized he might be convicted of this crime, he never thought he was going to be convicted of the crime because he didn't commit the crime. So I think it's a very telling question. The way he answered that question really does tell me that Shane is innocent in my eyes. And if you listen back to my interview with John Ziegler, John Ziegler asked Jerry Sandusky that same question when uh, he asked Jerry Sandusky when he interviewed him in prison, when he thought that he was in, could be convicted of the horrible crimes alleged he committed. And he didn't really think he was going to be convicted until they you know, read that he was guilty of all the charges. So I think that's telling the way that both Shane and Jerry Sandusky answered those questions. They were both very naive going into it, thinking the criminal justice system was actually seeking truth instead of seeking convictions. And I think that's very key. That's very key to both of those cases. Now, in Shane's case and in the Sandusky case, there's also there was an incredible amount of manipulation, um, misleading by detectives, which we talked about with uh, talking about there being physical evidence and manipulation of even the judge, maybe some unintentional or maybe it was intentional manipulation in a couple of different areas. In Shane's case, um, he talked about the tainted jury pool. I believe it was in the second trial where in the state of Vermont, this is kind of strange, I think. I didn't know that, that they did this in any states where they'll have the same jury look at several trials and they mixed up the questions or the details of Shane's trial with someone who had already been convicted of some horrible crimes against children. And the jury pool thought when they saw Shane, they thought that Shane had committed those crimes. And then they were told later to discount that, to forget about that. But of course, once you have that image in your mind that's associated with someone, that's pretty hard to overcome. There's also the key evidence where they misled and manipulated. Really, the only piece of actual physical evidence that they had in Shane's case was that diary. The girl's diary with her, her shape book or her Shane book, as they said, which really, there was really no link to Shane, but they made it seem that way. And they treated it as a key piece of evidence when in reality, it was just a child's diary. There's one more major aspect of this case where I did find some similarities between this uh, Sandusky case and that comes down to, in order to believe that, that these crimes took place, you have to believe in, in a massive conspiracy, right? In the Sandusky case, in order to believe that Jerry Sandusky sexually abused all these young boys, you have to believe that 
there were people helping him do this, people turning their back. And you also have to believe that there were six individuals, six individuals at one of the most prestigious public universities in the nation who were covering up for a serial child molester and turned their back knowingly after hearing about a rape, a sexual abuse in a shower. You have to believe that six people, four at the university and, and two people outside of the university, one of them being the alleged witness's father, you know, covered up, turned a blind eye to this, all in order to protect a football program. So they allowed an animal, allegedly, they allowed this animal, Jerry Sandusky, to go loose, abusing all these young boys and turned a blind eye. These are, you know, functioning people, people, university presidents, the most winning football coach of all time, the doctors turned their back and just allowed this to go on. And in the Shane Casey case, it's just as it's just as crazy, right? Uh, in order to believe that Shane Casey was a part of this uh, this really child rape ring, you have to believe that there's some sort of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, drugging and child raping ring that that goes on, an international one, because this girl had said that there was. The same thing happened in England when she was living there with her mother and in the United States that all these men would come back to their house after AA meetings and they would watch the same movie, a, a pornographic movie, and they would drug her mother and her and then and then rape her. And that happened. She said that happened in England. And the same exact thing down to the details of the same movie being played happened in the United States. So you have to believe in some massive Alcoholics Anonymous drug child rape ring, which that's too much for me to believe. And it's amazing that this was brought to trial based on a a story so seemingly absurd. There's not a lot of uh, shows out there that are going to question cases like this, that are going to look into horrible charges such as this. Most people will not do it because of the nature of the crimes. But as I've said many times before, we cannot allow emotion to blind us as we seek justice. Every single person deserves a fair trial, no matter how abhorrent the crimes they are charged with. And sexual abuse of a child is the most horrid crime that I can really think of. Anyone proven to have committed this crime, to have abusing a child, deserves to pay the full, the full price of the law and deserves to rot in prison. But in order to do that, There has to be solid evidence. There has to be a strong case. We need to find a way to make our criminal justice system seek the truth and not just seek convictions, not just seek stacking convictions, no matter what the evidence and the truth say, which is what we have today. We have prosecutors that work with detectives just to stack convictions, the evidence be damned, and that has to stop. So I want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I want to thank you for listening to my post-show rant here. And uh, thank you for listening to this longer episode of Felony Friday. Just a couple quick notes. Please, if you have not yet, consider joining the Alliance of Liberty Forum. It's growing pretty crazy. We're getting close to 1,000 members. It's on Facebook. You can join it by going to facebook.com in the search bar at the top. Type in Lions of Liberty Forum. It'll pop up and we will get you approved as long as your profile looks like you are a real person. And please, if you listen to the Lions of Liberty podcast on iTunes, please go to iTunes. Give us a five-star rating. Leave us a review. If you don't listen on iTunes, please also consider subscribing wherever you listen, be it Stitcher Radio or any other number of uh, podcasting apps. 
please follow us on social media. If you aren't following us, please consider following us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty, Twitter, twitter.com slash Lions of Liberty. That is it for today's show. Thank you guys for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. <laughs>